Warning, this episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Tom Walsh. Tom is one of the young lions on the London music scene. A graduate of the Royal Academy of Music, Tom has gone on to forge a name for himself in the studio and on the stage on both sides of the pond. And Tom's ultra-hip work as an arranger has started to catch the attention of artists and fans worldwide. Tom is a sweetheart of a guy and one mother of a player. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. Welcome to uh, this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I have got with me today Mr. Tom Walsh, all the way from London. What's up, man? Cheers, brothers and sisters. How are we doing? Cheers, my friend. So uh, I'm really excited about this hang. Uh, This is the first time Tom and I are actually getting a chance to to meet, and I'm, I'm really, really psyched about this. I found out about Tom through uh through jerry hay and you know anybody who jerry thinks is a talented guy has got to be a talented guy and so he's had nothing but uh, tremendous things to say about tom and his playing and his arranging so i'm looking forward to getting to know more about this guy um so let's just jump in on this on uh i guess the the big question for me uh, with, you know talking with you after listening to some of your stuff is um Man, what uh, what is going through your head on some of those charts, man? They are just nuts. <laughs> oh well, it's I mean, it's kind of it's been a strange old path to get to to kind of certainly the horn arranging world. Uh, that's kind of like I don't know. Um, it's taken piqued my interests for so long now. It was kind of all a bit of a lightning bolt moment hearing the great Jerry Hay for the first time. Well, of course, without realizing it, I would have heard him plenty of times on the background on almost every hit ever. Right. Uh, but I think probably the first time I just started pl- on a jazz trumpet degree in London and I was a diehard, you know, Freddie Hubbard, kind of Clifford Brown, Lee Morgan, Dizzy Gillespie nut. Right. And I was obsessed with jazz. And then I'd heard Working Day and Night by Michael Jackson for the first time. And it was a case of, yeah, from that, from then on, I was hooked. Started transcribing, takedowns, everything, and from then on, just trying to kind of, I, I just, just kind of, the, just thought I've got to start writing my own stuff and try and see how it all works. And learnt, learnt from kind of demoing stuff up. I guess that's kind of like the, the beauty of home recording now. Just kind of starting to track stuff up myself and work out. How it, how it kind of fit together. And from then on, I don't know, I guess try and maybe add a little bit of uh, jazz harmony in the same way Jerry did or other people did, and then go from there and then find a bunch of players crazy enough to want to play it. That's yeah. probably the, the key. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's always it. And um, yeah, some of the stuff I was listening to uh, on your YouTube channel, just uh, uh, like like you were saying, yeah, some of the... the the voicings that she used, some of the jazz harmonies that she threw in, it just completely took me off guard, which is, you know, great. I mean, I think like you, uh, you know, Jerry has been uh, out of all, and, and fortunately had a, the, the chance to, to interview him, um, that, uh, you know, there, I had like three major influences on me in trumpet. Um, the first was Herb Alpert. I'm just old enough that that was, you know, he was, he was cool. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of music, I mean, as, as a trumpet player, you know, not the greatest trumpet player, you know, to ever pick up a horn, but in terms of what he did with music and continues the impact he's continued to have on the music industry and, and society, great dude. Uh, the second was Maynard Ferguson. You know, what can you say? You know, first time you ever hear, you know, that kind of playing, it just, you know, changes your world. And then when I first understood, like you, when I first identified 
Jerry with the stuff that I had been listening to on the radio. And it's like, oh, put two and two together. And that just opened my mind to a whole new approach to uh, what the trumpet was capable of doing uh, in, a, in a popular music setting. And the sound that that, that section got was just, whew, man, scary. It's just world ending, really. And I think, like you said, I think it's great that, you know, Jerry, I'm sure we'll get onto, onto this, but I've been so lucky to kind of get to know him. When you look at uh, the changes that occurred in the in the landscape of trumpet, I mean, you, you definitely, like you said, you know, Freddie, man, completely changed, changed the world of trumpet. You know, obviously go back a little bit earlier. You got Miles, uh, go back further, Dizzy. Uh, you know, all the way back to Pops. Uh, and then, you know, you've, you've got the, the newer generation of people coming up. So um, who are some of your, your, your influences of the, of the past? And, and uh, what are some of the things that you want to bring to the table as a player to take things to the next level? That's a great question. I, I guess probably, I guess you always cite your first influences, don't you? So when I first started taking the trumpet seriously, for me, it was Dizzy Gillespie. I think it wasn't anything, it wasn't a spectacularly kind of, I think I had a compilation album of some of his Bluebird recordings, but it had everything through to kind of, you know, him and Charlie Parker trading on quintet things all the way through to some of the, the big band things. I think he did for RCA in, the, in like the mid forties, kind of heading towards the fifties. So without realizing it, this one little, CD that I think probably my dad picked up from a charity shop, bless him. It, it suddenly it felt like it held all the keys to the kingdom. And uh, I then went out and kind of got a copy of Dizzy's autobiography, which had a great ni- name anyway. It's called To Be or Not To Bop. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just thought that was just great. I mean, so he was, I mean, you've got absolutely no holds barred with someone like his play because you start with such a fearsome technique. There's no range of the trumpet. He invented bebop vocabulary on the trumpet. So he's flying around the thing. But also, of course, you know, in some of these, some of the kind of B-sides, I guess, of some of these old RCA records, he plays beautifully on these ballads. And um, actually, weirdly, there's one that I remember on that uh, compilation called Dizzier and Dizzier, which was a really haunting tune. And then I think you kind of get straight into this rip-roaring big band Solly. And it, again, not really being that exposed to big band music at that stage, that kind of, you know, not only did I love small group jazz, but then you hear that all on the same record. So I've got to say he was very early on. And then probably Miles came after, actually. I think I probably heard the Gil Evans records. And again, I think by that point, I'd almost fall in love with the whole big band sound orchestration. Mm -hmm. And I guess actually without realising it, I was always kind of hooked by the orchestration side of things within the big band jazz orchestra setting. So yeah, that Miles Gill stuff going all the way from like Birth of the Cool all the way through to kind of, you know, Sketches of Spain, Porgy and Bess and, you know, and uh, Miles Ahead as well, which I think was the first big collaboration. After that, I kind of, I was checking out a couple of, on the radio over here in England, they used to sadly, is no longer the case, but they used to have as like a used to be a state funded radio big band called the BBC Big Band. Everyone's right. heard of the, mm-hmm. the BBC. Um, unfortunately, the jazz kind of bands were the first to get axed uh, in in the budget cuts. But um, the the great Derek Watkins used to play mm-hmm. the trumpet in that in that radio orchestra, and uh, so every Monday night they'd kind of. I'd go to my little blow band rehearsal, just like a rehearsal band on a Monday night. Then, then my dad would drive me home and I'd listen to Derek Watkins. And their star, at the time, the BBC had a star jazz trumpet soloist um, who, as soon as I heard him play, I was absolutely hooked by. He's a guy called Gerard Presenza. And mm-hmm. he's, um, I guess, a lot of people, again, without realising it, they would have heard him on a on a track that was pretty famous in the nineties. It's like a, it was, on, it was a blue notes record by an artist called us three. And there was some mm-hmm. rapping. It's like a remake of cantaloupe yep. Island. Yep. Cantaloupe. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And that, and he, that solo is phenomenal. Man. It's, that's a whole nother story. And you, I'm sure to be honest, Gerard's a great person to speak to about all of his anecdotes in the world of music. I mean, without going too into detail, I know that there was 
something involved. He, I think he was about 17 or 18 when he recorded that solo. And I think he probably got it. I think he probably got a princely sum of like $100 for the entire recording. And that was all he ever saw. Anyway, uh -huh. um, but yeah, basically, as soon as I heard his playing, I was hooked by it. And he happened to be the head of the Royal Academy of Music's jazz course in London. So by mm. this stage that I was hearing him, he'd really kind of got further into into high up, uh, higher education jazz specifically. And so I kind of made it my like my goal to go and study with him in London. I wanted to be on that course. Mm -hmm. And uh, through a bit of, well, through a bit of bunking off some of my um, A-levels over here and kind of like 16 to 18, I wasn't necessarily found in uh, in some of the classrooms in my school i'd just be trying to hunt down which ones had practice rooms free <laughs> okay. and, and that's kind of like a because I, I, I knew what it at that stage i knew that i'd have to have i i was going to have to kind of practice pretty hard to kind of get to college level mm -hmm. i was i was never a very promising classical student um i kind of I progressed through a lot of the kind of graded exams and managed to kind of pass them by the skin of my teeth most of the time but there was like all sorts of technique things that I never really got together and uh, I mean Jerry actually has all the secrets he's heard me in a room he can hear, he can hear all the things that I can't do because he's he's given me a great few lessons before they've been right. world changing for me but it must have been like teaching an absolute beginner at times but it's uh it's been a great kind of road to get there, but Gerard Presenza, I'd definitely highly, anyone that's a fan of kind of contemporary kind of jazz trumpet playing in the modern era, he's played with so many killer musicians and he's like a, an amalgam of, he, he digs early 60s Freddie. He's got a lot of amazing pentatonic shapes like Woody, uh, Woody Shaw and actually right. one of the most gorgeous rounded kind of flugelhorn tones i've ever heard it just it felt like a midi keyboard how slotted his pitch was mm. and it was just this beautiful round tone so luckily i got to study with him and then of course i got to meet just from being around the city and starting to kind of do the odd gig here and there in college i got to meet a lot of my uh deplorable and favorite trumpet characters in london <laughs> and it's, it's a massive city full of some incredible players in every idiom now so i'm i'm very lucky to count myself as one of the the small few in the in uh, the city but they've all been incredibly welcoming um i could reel off so many names but i'm sure you probably have heard of them wherever where you are as well they kind of tend to kind of make waves where, whatever they do really yeah 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 so you you went to the uh royal academy correct and um yeah that's uh you know, very prestigious school. And uh, who who were some of the other professors there? I think what was is uh was Mike one of your professors yeah. there? I was wondering if that might be yeah, I, I was gonna see if if you had that yeah, Mike Lovett, uh, who's um a top uh, session and kind of lead trumpet player over here. He was he was my teacher throughout the four years at college as well. So uh, I primarily was just hell bent to go study with Gerard just I guess for his improvis improvisational concepts more than anything, but then actually just hearing him in a room and hearing him, he used to shred over Donna Lee in A major in seven, eight and all these sort of things. And when, when you hear, when you hear that sort of thing happen, it's sometimes as an 18 year old or something, the best thing is to just let it wash over you. Mm -hmm. And if you can pick up any little kernels, uh, for yourself, just kind of take anything you can get, but it's it's just great to kind of listen to it. Uh, but yeah, Mike was instrumental as well. He really massively helped me out as I started to kind of get professional work in in London and stuff. And he really he put put a good name out for me and kind of we would talk through some of the kind of it wasn't a method that I went super down the road of, but he was he's a big uh, advocate of the Maggio kind of method and he teaches at all the London colleges um, and uh, yeah I mean he's strong as an ox I'm sure everyone's heard him with the John Wilson Orchestra and Seth MacFarlane's albums and things like that so it's kind of yeah just crazy kind of getting a chance to meet those those type of people those type of players. Yeah well I mean it sounds like you kind of had a plan going into things of uh, at least an idea of where you wanted to be and um, 
I, I, I feel that's, that's so important because so many people, uh, especially, you know, not just younger people, I mean, even, hell, people my age, sometimes they, they lose track of, of what they want to accomplish in life. And then, you know, you, you kind of wander aimlessly. So uh, once you got to school, uh, did your, your vision of where you wanted to be change uh, or, or did you just, you know, kind of stay the course? I think that's a really cool thing you just said there, actually, because I guess it's kind of without realizing it. I think I was always fairly moldable with my musical ideas. I guess I was always ready to be guided. Um, you do see some people at a college level. It's not not a criticism at all, um, but it's kind of like I guess it's kind of advice that I'd like to give anyone that's approaching that music college kind of age would be just it doesn't really matter necessarily who your teachers are. As long, as long as you've kind of got a strong head on your shoulders and, and like you said, you've been checking out a lot of music, you have an idea of what you want to go for, then it was kind of, then I think anything's kind of achievable to a certain extent if you're surrounded by a good bunch of people. Um, I think because there was such, it was such a melting pot of musicians from all over the UK, Europe and further afield, um, it kind of meant that they were all kind of coming into college and giving their own influence and it was just nice to meet that caliber of player uh i I certainly probably age 18 for instance i'd been checking out loads of bebop and hardbop and i guess i was probably wanting to aim to be something more like freddie hubbard but then like i said got slightly soundtrack uh, sidetracked for about let me see was 10 years and counting uh, with the jerry (laughs) a influence and That took me one direction. I love playing lead trumpet in big bands. I played in the youth jazz orchestra at college age that was called the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, which a lot of the great uh, jazz and session musicians in the UK, it, that, that orchestra has been going for well over 50 years now. So there's kind of, it actually in the first, the first iteration of that band was again, one of my lead trumpet heroes who just had his 60th birthday the other day in London, a guy called Simon Gardner, who plays lead trumpet on our version of dancing with the stars like strictly come dancing mm-hmm. um i mean he and he played with buddy rich sinatra everyone but everyone actually there's a load of people that came through this national youth jazz orchestra which was a it was a super invaluable uh tool uh, to go through there because they didn't even have an audition process it was incredible you could turn up on a saturday morning they and they'd kind of divide the bands into into different kind of ability ranges but I was able to kind of go there and mainly actually I guess being more of an ear musician than a than someone that could read very well and then but of course if you if you get put into a situation with a load of you know right it's it's like like it's all these student written charts they're all writing at age 18 19 with a point to prove writing off both sides of every cleft and uh eventually yeah just probably just by sheer information overload, some of it has to kind of seep in. So that's kind of really where I learned to read. And that particular pad, I know a lot of people attribute it to kind of, you know, like that's kind of where they really got their sight reading together. And it was certainly the same for me. But yeah, I I was never wanted to be just a lead trumpet player or just a jazz trumpet player, just because I had a lot of different influences. I kind of wanted to, I wanted to kind of make sure that my sound was, malleable enough to fit certain settings i guess uh so i guess if there was any concepts at a young age it was just trying to kind of keep everything yeah keep everything floating and see where see where the current takes you but to have to not be stuck in one regime or way of thinking so it's kind of but yeah and within the jazz course there was all sorts of you know you'd cover everything from doing like big spiderbeck and louis armstrong stuff all the way through to playing Kenny Wheeler charts and then, you know, some of the more entertaining recitals at my time in college were the, the proper free-for-all, free-form jazz ones. Uh-huh. Where pe- people might walk out of the audience, but you'd be having a bit of fun anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So um, I when as I was doing a little research on your uh, background, um, I saw that uh, you, you know, you've worked with a lot of different people, uh, but uh, we I found out we do have a connection uh, you worked. You worked with uh, Vince Mendoza, uh, and and I went. To, I went to college with Vince. We went to Ohio State together, 
and uh, I actually haven't seen him since uh, I left Ohio State uh, back in the early 80s. But, uh, yeah, I've been so impressed with the work that he's done. I mean, I was impressed with his work when he was in, in, when he was in college. But, uh, you know, the, the stuff that he's been doing, like, what's, what's it like working with Vince? Oh, I can't tell you what a thrill that is. I mean, it's kind of, I don't, I, again, all these strange, probably pseudo-millennial ways into these type of influences that are kind of funny looking back on it. I think probably the first time I was ever aware of Vince Mendoza was that scene in that Christmas film, Love Actually. You know, the, uh, the scene yeah. where, where Emma Thompson plays Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And it's that, that's that heartbreaking rendition of, I mean, it's a heartbreaking scene, but um, I think probably, you know, it has the album cover featured and I know that was a huge record for him, but not only that, it was a huge record, I think for the whole London scene. And mm-hmm. ever since then, I guess we're very lucky living in this city because Vince has always been a a champion and I think he always kind of has enjoyed a champion of the London scene he's always enjoyed coming to London making records with the players there so again just going back to a trumpet note you've got Derek Watkins John Barkley and actually my old teacher Gerard presents us in the section on that both sides now record so again just all these kind of A-list London trumpet players but yeah as a jazzer as well it kind of you know Vince's kind of original compositions and everything like that were kind of very well, um, well, just well documented and well revered amongst, um, in our scene, you know, all the way through back to the nineties records and everything, it all kind of became part of the lexicon of stuff that we check out. So it was, yeah, a very surreal chance to kind of work with him with the, uh, the band in Cologne, the, the VDR, the WDR big band, mm-hmm. um, which again, one of my all-time favorite big bands uh featuring one of my all-time favorite lead trumpet players Andy Harderer mm-hmm. um i guess well i know a lot of people there was a, one particular busy weekend uh in 2000 and, this is this is a couple of years ago now i guess december of 2016 uh there was one it was probably like a couple of weekends before christmas and there was a load of christmas gigs going on but for whatever reason I think the first and the second trumpet player had to pull out of this concert and recording project. So it meant that I think Vince put a request in to say, well, can we get a lead trumpet player over from London? And I guess kind of some of the people weren't around in the, the call ended up coming to me. So I, of course I, I dropped everything and flew over there. And I've got to say, he's a, he's an absolute gent. You know, I arrived the night before the session. Um, I got an email from him saying, thanks so much for helping us out. He fancied meeting for breakfast in, in the hotel. And again, just it's so nice when you meet these people and they're just great human beings. They, they put all nerves aside, you know, and just just like Jerry, they're dead serious when it comes to music. But they're not, they're not letting that kind of the perfectionist ways kind of like affect their, their psyche or anything like that. It was yeah. kind of working with him was, a again, it was a bit like when I finally got a chance to play under Jerry's watchful eye. It was a case of, you know, you just, it's, I think at that stage, you're hopefully relying off some sort of instinct and some, some skills you've honed to get to that stage because you don't really want to kind of, you don't want to miss the thrill of the experience. I think kind of, it's difficult sometimes as a musician to bottle that because you're kind of, you're so focused on doing your job to a higher level that you kind of, one experience turns into the other and you kind of you can get the blinkers on in your own little world but yeah working with Vince actually was a a massively it was I mean the music was incredible it was uh this uh Pat Metheny's drummer Antonio Sanchez it was all of his um music his original music for his band Migration um scaled up for big bands so it was a bit of a roast like lots of odd time (laughs) signatures and, and but again no Vince was incredibly kind and that basically we've we've been in touch since then and um actually strangely uh i'm i'm not just in case he's not announced it or anything but he called me that was one of the best best days i've had in lockdown in this little spare bedroom of mine come recording studio i've just recorded some stuff up for vince actually for one of his upcoming projects like kind of did some trumpet section work on that so that was it was nice to be in touch with him again and yeah as a, as an arranger He's, he's one of my absolute favorites. Yeah. Um, so many great projects of his with the Metropole Orchestra, 
the VDR, everything. It's uh, he's a yeah, just a gent. What can I say? Yeah, I'm sure you have the same experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I haven't seen him since the uh, the 80s, but you know, he was always a good guy, and uh, you know, just always willing to just give you an encouraging word or you know just hang out and have a cup of coffee so you know and and that's important you know i think that life is too short to be an asshole basically uh and especially in in the music world because uh you know there's there's no shortage of talented players out there but uh you know it, you're the the thing you can do to there are two things you can do to make sure you don't get called back on a gig one is just not to play well and then the other is just to be an idiot because you know nobody wants to work with the idiots yeah i mean it's uh, that's a great it's just a great mantra to live by and also it reminds me again the same thing rephrased slightly differently but the, the head of that course at the academy he's a great raconteur and, and again great trumpet player a guy called nick smart who if it wasn't for his guidance at college, I should have probably been thrown out a couple of times for misbehaving. But he's he's always fought my corner and we're we're close friends now and he really is a mentor to me as well. But I think he said he said something to all these aspiring, you know, these jazz musicians that are kind of packed into one of the it's a very I'm lucky to have gone there. It's a very prestigious course where they handpick usually only one player per instrument per year on the jazz course. Hmm. And sometimes it just means that you, you grow up in one year with like a small group combo, essentially. Right. And uh, so probably like similar to like the Monk Institute or something like that. But it was, I think he said once upon a time, he was just, he just said, well, look, it's taken as giving, taken as given that you're all going to come out of here completely killing. And then it's just a case of people are going to want to work with you if you're a nice, nice person. You know, it's kind of, I, I always thought that it was kind of, it was quite a cool thing to, yeah, everyone is actually amazing at what they're doing here at this level and it's kind of after that it's just fine tuning and hopefully you don't have to be the sort where you have to try to be a nice guy because of course like anywhere and any profession there's going to be two-faced people along the way but no you're right I, if I think about all the people that have been so kind to me kind of coming up on the instrument and forgiving all of my mistakes essentially <laughs> musically and otherwise okay. uh yeah it's it's you're right that's the that's definitely the way to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you, you're you young enough um, that uh, technology is, is not a stranger to you. And uh, sometimes, <laughs> um, but, you know, in terms of like, you know, the way things have, have progressed, as you were just talking about, you know, doing some, some recording for Vince, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that's on your YouTube channel, it's, you know, you and your guys in, in the home studio, as opposed to like the traditional, you know, going to like, if you're in LA, going to Capitol Records and, and sitting in the A studio or something like that. Um, but I know you do both. I mean, you've done the traditional recording studio, you do the home thing. Uh, what do you see is the, the biggest difference between those two? I mean, do you have to adjust your mindset? Do you find one, you know, more preferable than the other? That's another great question. I think, to be honest, the only reason I ever started dabbling with the idea of home recording was to try and synthesize that skill set. I guess by the time I graduated, uh, which was 2013, I, I think, I've, you know, I've been working I've been working professionally around before that and kind of, you know, up until graduation, but it was, I mean, it would be a myth to say that the session scene compared to days of, you know, 30 years ago is booming. Of course it's not, but there is still work to be had, but I just thought to myself, well, do you know what? I need to just get used to the sensation of things like having cans on my head or, you know, what, what does the trumpet feel like when you've got that ear off? What does it sound like? What does it kind of, feel like like with this ear off and things right. like that and it was actually I used it as more of a practice tool if anything uh recording myself just because you could kind of you know there's no way of lying you know it's it's all very good and well especially for jazz it was it was the most amazing practice you know it's kind of you know like just give yourself one chorus on Cherokee or something like that and if you if you if you go back and listen to it you, you kind of always inevitably have moments of oh what was I thinking or sometimes you'll hear licks that you you knew you were already going to play in advance and you can you can work out those kinks and you can right. kind of so I used it originally as like a practice tool like you said practicing practicing my my own arrangements trying to work out how if that voicing worked or if if this type of double tracking worked and 
it, it did wonders for my consistency. But then, like you said, I think there is a different, slightly different mantra to recording in a studio. And this might just be me, but I feel like it's a bit, it's, it's a bit more of a similar sensation to playing a gig, I think, because you're, the concentration, if you're recording from home now, you know, at the end of the day, you want to be doing as much of the work as you can and keep it as musical as possible. But if you need to, the reality is now with kind of Pro Tools and Logic or things like that, you can drop in phrase by phrase. But then if you get something incredibly difficult in a recording studio with 50 other people, you've got to do it the old fashioned way too. So I think obviously now with over three months into the lockdown, so it's a case of, you know, I can't even remember what it feels like to kind of go back to a, a professional recording session environment. Although I think maybe over here that's due to happen anytime soon. Um, but it's kind of, yeah, I think it's more of a, I mean, again, this, this uh, great lead trumpet player, Simon Gardner said, I think, he, he described the great session players that he sat next to, people like John Barkley, Derek Watkins, and then going back to older than that, uh, Tony Fisher, kind of Kenny Baker, all these kind of revered, amazingly trumpet players that would have nerves of steel in the recording studio. And I think it is just a concentration thing. It really is about kind of just kind of having that kind of horse blinkered kind of concentration for things. So I try and approach studio playing I guess more like a performance where you can't well you can't really swear between takes if you screw a note up so it's kind of <laughs> as you as you can at home yeah uh, it's uh yeah I think it's a great tool for anyone not any not just trumpet but any instrument if you learn to record yourself these days as well it's you know you can I think Jerry was very instrumental in kind of helping me at the right time to kind of get some of the right mics that I now use in my professional studio that I rent, but it, you know, for the purposes of learning and starting off, you can come up with amazing sounding results um, from just, you know, just like something that costs a couple of hundred dollars or something. It's really fairly affordable now and it keeps getting, the technology right. keeps getting cheaper and better. I mean, yeah. there are some things that don't get cheaper and better like the, like vintage microphones or you right. know, instruments and things like that. That always seems to be kind of, going on the up and up but there's definitely a path into anyone that wants to do it and certainly most of it's kind of like you said youtube's such a resource you can kind of find everything you need you can go down a rabbit hole at four in the morning and learn how to do your side side chain compression whatever you want to learn how to do and right. use it to taste i guess well i mean i I am very impressed by that uh, that idea of using the studio as your practice. I mean, I'd certainly everybody can use it as, as just a practice tool, but um, I think that's a really, really smart thing to do is to use it, uh, you know, not just for recording your, your personal playing, but recording your ideas, uh, getting uh, how voicing sound, uh, understanding how the, you know, the cans affect you, you know, because so many people just, you know, they roll into the studio and just approach it the same way they would in a practice room or on stage. And it's a completely different environment. So that's, yeah, that's a great idea. So any of you listening out here who want to get into studio work, maybe start practicing your studio skills at home. It's, uh, it's, that's exactly, it's, it's a great tip. And I mean, I was always a fan of Jay Graydon as a producer and a, oh. as a session musician because of all the, the Jerry Hay connection and everything and the yeah. David Foster connection. Mm -hmm. So on his website, actually, there's a fantastic little essay almost. I mean, I can tell that Jay is quite a, quite an intense bloke. So he's going to be kind of writing, when I say essay, it's a 30-page manual on studio etiquette and things like hey. that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But there's silly little things that have really, I think if you want to be a studio musician now, um, and of course, sadly, a lot of them, and hopefully after this crisis, fingers crossed, there will be, there will be plenty still up and running. But 
you know, you have to kind of, I think people coming up now have to kind of try and think as quickly as they possibly can and assimilate all the different jobs of, within the studio as you can. So you need to be a little bit clued up on mic position, mic technique. You need to kind of know a little bit more about foldback, for instance, because, you know, one of the, one of the kind of typical things that I sometimes find if I'm working with certain stick in the mud type musicians is you'll, you'll hear them cranking their own individual levels up more of me, more of me, more of me. And you kind of think to yourself, well, actually it's going to be probably a little bit more beneficial if you can practice at home, just getting used to hearing a bit more of your acoustic sound and kind of, and you know, a bit like a Bobby shoe thing, practice off the resistance of the trumpet. You need to make sure that kind of, that remains the same because and again, I've, I did a tour last year on in-ear monitors and I ended up finding that that was kind of really screwing with my, my kind of whole ear canals and ear, nose and throat type thing. So I'd, I'd find myself getting a lot of tension in my neck, which was a problem I really had to address a bit, a bit of time ago. And, and of course, what was the solution was to find a nice acoustic and go practice acoustically in a room so that you're kind of, you know, it's not natural to, to have these on all the time, even though I think we style it out. Okay. I think yeah, we're looking okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're doing good. yeah. I mean, for me, I love in-ear monitors mostly because the, the work that I do primarily is uh, very loud, uh, you know, playing with like, you know, funk bands and, you know, that sort of thing and having drummers who insist on trying to take your head off with the cymbals. But um, it, yeah, it took me a while to get used to uh, what the sound was coming out of the horn as opposed to how I was hearing the sound myself. Um, one of my teachers uh, just, you know, had made a comment to me because I was playing so damn loud, you know, just killing myself, uh, trying to hear myself over uh, over the band. And he's like, no, you know, if, you're, if you've got a sound man, you have to trust that the sound man's doing his job. You just need to play your horn. So I had to really spend, spend a lot of time practicing with in ears at home and trying to equate the feeling that I was having with the sound that I was getting. And uh, yeah, I think that a lot of times people look at, at the, the technology as a solution, but they don't, as we were talking about earlier, they don't do the practice to get, uh, to get that connection because it is a slightly different, different approach. Oh, massively. And it was just, yeah, I found exactly the same thing. And I can't, I can't say that I'm an expert at playing within ears. I know that people, like Rashawn Ross that I know, who's an absolute monster. He, you know, he's out with Dave Matthews band the whole time. And I think he's actually got maybe a couple of different monitoring set setups. I think he has like a wedge and some in-ears, but I mean, someone like him is probably an absolute guru to, to go to. And I've, I've only had probably two sets of molds um, ever uh, within ears, but I, no, I, I think, you're, like you said, there's such an amazing tool in terms of you don't have to damage your hearing by cranking everything as loud certainly and uh but it's it's it was good for me to my own personal experience was and of course i was still playing the gig night after night on in ears but just having a little bit of time in a room beforehand without anything plugged in yeah it kind of made me think ah okay yes and like you said i was certainly overblowing certainly playing far too loud so i think that's probably a lesson that i have to keep telling myself on a daily basis yeah, well, <laughs> you and about 30 million other trumpet players. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you know, I know you were, you uh, have worked with Jerry both professionally and also, you know, your friendship and uh, you've done some studying with him as well. Um, and, yeah, Jerry's a, a big proponent of the, uh, you know, of uh, Bill Adam and, and, and his, his concepts. And, you know, did you find that to be kind of... Uh, something that, that helped you to, to clarify your, your approach to playing, uh, you know, like the, the mental side of, of, of trumpet playing, because that's a huge part of, of what Jerry does. I think I've got to say, going to study with Jerry and, and Gary Grant, um, super, I, I can't really believe that the stars aligned and I was lucky enough to do it and to know them at the time, but it was, they were so generous with their time. But like you said, it was talking to these Zen masters, of the instrument and I, I've got to say that they had probably you know the lessons with Jerry and Gary is completely revolutionized the way that I play the trumpet and some of the things that that Jerry diagnosed and it's kind of 
I was very lucky that he was in a position to kind of to want to even essentially give me the keys to the kingdom or give he's so he's always been so generous with his time and his advice to to everyone I think we probably originally started messaging way back when probably nearly 10 years ago probably on Facebook when he joined and it's it's kind of it's surreal to think how it's come but yeah those guys really have like I said that kind of that that just the concentration of that they kind of you can just see it like they kind of whole the whole face changes and their whole mindset just like engages when they've when they've got a trumpet in front of them and it's kind of it must be I think probably I did it at the right time as well I think if someone had tried to kind of show me these kind of more refined kind of more yeah mental concepts more than physical things I probably wouldn't have had the patience maybe as a youngster to kind of understand it but yeah the Bill Adam routine whilst I'm sure what I end up doing is more of an amalgam of what Jerry and some of what Gary showed me it's uh, what a pedagogue he he was he and what a great man from all the stories I've heard so it's uh certainly that mantra and again going to jazz college felt like it was it was telling me all the all the opposite things to what Jerry and Gary finally did which was I think the mantra in jazz college is not not where I went but people said you know, like if you're going to practice jazz language in a room, it doesn't need to sound good. Or, you know, if you're working out ideas or harmonic ideas and it doesn't have to, doesn't matter if you split it. Whereas the trumpet side of things, the calisthenics and the kind of rudiments, if you will, I think it's a great idea to always be making the best sound that you can at all times on the trumpet. And that just reinforces the muscle memory and the idea of your, and your concepts, like you were saying. Those yeah. two are absolute Jedi. They're yeah, they're the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, we've got some really great uh, guys out there, and that's that's also where I kind of stuck this, uh, stole this title of the trumpet gurus, because there's so many there's so many guys that are just like on another level in terms of their diagnostic abilities and and the concepts. Like you, know, you mentioned one of my favorites uh, earlier, Bobby Shue. Bobby is just yeah he just blows your mind uh you know he's like the trumpet yoda so uh yeah but but you know guys like jerry and gary and and bobby and and some wayne hero absolute hero yeah he is he's he's one of those dudes but uh so you you actually got a chance to uh to do some recording with jerry and and the boys and surreal it was uh so in back in 2000 14 i think it was probably yeah from the home studio a strange connection but i end up recording on a big band record where larry williams uh the the mm-hmm. saxophone the seaward horns yeah um of course i was a huge fan of his but he was also featured on the same track so i just graduated and i think i probably had a bit more get up and go then in terms of trying to make an organized live events but we ended up getting a gig together at ronnie scott's jazz club in london we did it was gonna it was always originally penned to be a tribute to al Jarreau, and we were going to try and stupidly maybe try and do the Jarreau album live in concert mm. and uh and so i contacted larry to see if he wanted to be a part of it and i had that introduction to him through this remote session and uh i think i'd probably just been in touch with jerry or maybe just met him for the first time and larry was was Al's MD. And so he said, well, why don't I see if he, if Al fancies doing it? And so I was just like, uh, yeah, okay. That sounds good. Yeah. That sounds fun. And, and for, you know, again, just couldn't believe my luck. Uh, Al was, Al came over and had an amazing time with us recreating that album. I think he hadn't sung some of the songs to that record for about 30 years. Or oh, so my. it was, it was surreal. And, uh, he, he sung incredibly, and then we did like, yeah, six shows back to back. And again, had a ridiculous trumpet team that we shared, that we shared the heavy lifting uh, on. So we had to, my good friends, Andy Greenwood and Louis Dowdswell, either side of me. So it was kind of a case of, yeah, it was fine. We swapped it around and just about got through it unscathed, I think. But after that, and of course, Al passed away a few years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry said, uh, well, look, we're going to do a tribute record for Al um, and since he had fond memories of that London concert uh, he said well do you want to come over and kind of 
be a part of the horn section. And then I, then I realized, hold on, that means that I'm filling Jerry's shoes in between Chuck and Gary. So yeah, it's kind of, it was surreal. Sur- yeah. Really surreal. Yeah, man, that, I would have had to change my pants about four or five times during that session. Oh wow! I mean, I don't want Jerry to know this necessarily, although he he did uh, he let me very kindly let me stay with him for a couple of nights, so he got to hear me try and fire my chops back into working. But it, it was just after the new year, and I'd just been on holiday and probably hadn't touched the trumpet for two weeks, maybe for Christmas as well, just decided it was time for a bit of a break. And so suddenly after three weeks off, trying to get yourself back to match fitness, that was probably a lesson. I know that Jerry's always said he never had a day off and now I kind of see why. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the big question is if you stayed at Jerry's place, uh, besides giving you the, the tips on the horn, did he uh, give you any tips on the wine? Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, do you know what? It's one of those things that I've asked him since lockdown, if he's been getting the good stuff out and it's, if there's anyone that uses the Vivino app, it's quite funny to kind of check out how much some of Jerry's bottles are worth. But of course, you know, like he says, he, he kind of got them all back at a time when it was all crazy. But yeah, I'm in my own very modest and inferior way. I, I, I am a big wine fan, definitely. Yeah. But just uh, I know what I like, but of course, like a lot of us, what I like, I can't afford. <laughs> uh, very, very true. Exceptionally true. <laughs> uh, so, I mean... Uh, Having worked in London, uh, you know, doing a lot of stuff in Europe, uh, being able to go, come over to the U.S. and do stuff. I mean, do you feel a big difference in the the music scene, like the vibe, the the mindset of people? Not at all. I mean, there's so many. I guess certain cities are kind of known for their specialities, but I think the real big hubs in the world, they kind of everyone's pretty forward thinking. They're not they're not um, constrained by genres so much there's so many amazing cities in the world i mean la was really inspirational to to go visit new york's always been one of my favorite cities and until recently i've never really been able to do the jazz pilgrimage but last time i was over there was last september and i was you know get, getting down to the smalls jazz club in in the village and kind of going around the corner to the 55 bar and suddenly putting you know seeing in real life all these places that i'd kind of I used to watch live streams or get live CDs from these places. And I saw, I saw the great trumpet player, Alex Sipiagin, who I've met a few yeah. times. He played a quintet gig that blew my head off. I just, I was just sat there with my kind of like, you know, my jaw on the floor the whole time, but it's, it really is. I know it's a cliche, but it is like a universal language and it's, it's great that people can kind of travel all over the world and, and make music together. It's uh yeah. And it really is, you know, that is one of the real thrills is traveling and meeting other musicians and just seeing what, what's going on in other cities and uh, I guess trying to bring some of that inspiration back home, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's at the core of what, what I'm trying to do with, with this podcast is to, you know, obviously some of the some of the standard names in the business, you know, people like Jerry and Wayne have, Man, have been on the show. To, I can't wait to check it. I need to I need to go back and uh, go back and check yeah. it all out. But but also to introduce people to to up and coming artists uh, and, and even people that maybe aren't so much uh, performers, name performers, but are related to the business, whether it be on the manufacturing side, the tech side, the promotion side. But, you know, because we all share that one thing in common, which is we just we love music and trumpet just happens to be the best way of making music in the world. And <laughs> the rest of you can just, you know wait wait your turn but yeah it, it's it's so important i think that uh we get a chance to share something that's so important to us and especially as you know society has been a little bit uh wonky recently things have been crazy uh you know societally and i think that we got to hold on to the things that that uh, take us all to a higher level and music is definitely one of those things i completely i couldn't couldn't agree more couldn't agree more so i I know that uh, you, you know, you went to went to the Royal Academy. Uh, you was your dad a musician, but I, I know because I know that your grandfather, yeah, was it skipped a generation. Aha! You uh-huh. have to do research. Yes, well, that's kind of um, yeah. It's it was one of these strange things again. Uh, I kind of guess I got into trumpet playing maybe a little bit later. Hence why I frantically practiced to try and get into a university because I 
was only really taking it seriously by about maybe 14 or 15, I'd say. It was never really, I wasn't really sure if it was for me. And then I discovered the jazz, you know, like I got, I got the first taste of the jazz drug and that, that had me hooked. But um, yeah, my, my granddad uh, was a, an absolutely world ending arranger, a, a Canadian guy called Robert Farnan. And he moved and emigrated to the UK in the fifties, I believe, or maybe even the late forties. But from what I understand, he actually was kind of like the equivalent of Glenn Miller but in the Canadian Armed Forces Band. So he led that band mm-hmm. in the 40s, and he was he was their lead trumpet player. So again, without knowing it, uh, I had no idea that he was a trumpeter until, uh, I think I mentioned the Dizzy Gillespie autobiography. Right. I then got, when he passed away, uh, I just started taking trumpet lessons, I think. And so one of the things I inherited was his signed copy of Dizzy's autobiography, which uh, I think in the front cover, there was a Polaroid of him and Dizzy and it said, dear Bob, uh, I'm glad you gave up the trumpet when you did, because he he basically, he gave up the trumpet to be a professional composer and arranger. And then Mm -hmm. since then he worked with Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, um, Sarah Vaughan, JJ Johnson, all these luminary George Shearing, all these beautiful lush orchestral kind of he was he was very famous for his light orchestral they they term it but mm-hmm. i know daniel falcone again someone i've still yet to meet in person but we've become kind of i guess virtual close pen pals but i know he's a big big fan of my granddad's music and he to, to be honest he's got some access to some of his old scores that i've ne- i would absolutely kill to see ah you might have to make a pilgrimage out to las vegas then I, I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, well, yeah, it could be dangerous. So. No, I, I can't wait to meet Dan, actually. He's been he's been super cool to talk to. And, of course, checking out his horn section work and everything has just been mind-blowing, too. And it's yeah. uh, that's what I mean. It's this weird kind of, like you said, it's a weird international kind of scene now. And I think it's kind of, it's great to keep your eyes peeled for people all over the place and people that are popping up left, right and centre from all sorts of, you know, places in the world. It's kind of YouTube and Instagram. You, you can kind of, yeah, it has, it has a strange amount of reach. I think people have to, you have to get it in check sometimes, but it's a, it's a great tool for if someone was to Google. I think that's how someone taught me or a great masterclass I must have had pretty early on was saying, if someone was to Google your name or to kind of put your name into YouTube, try and, you know, if I'm not really, I don't know, people might disagree, but I'm not a real big social media guy, but I try and have enough on there that you can, of stuff that you can at least be proud of as like a point in time. And you can say, okay, well, that's kind of, that's part of me in a nutshell and here's some of it. So I try and approach social media like that, but I mean, it's kind of, I don't know why I've just veered off topic there, but that's okay. Yeah, we're good. (laughs) Okay. So we have to, we have to do at least one little gearhead section. So uh, what, what, what kind of gear are you using these days? Ever since coming back from those lessons with Jerry and Gary, uh, I hadn't actually ever been a bark guy before. I'd never played a bark. A lot of people do growing up. I know, but I kind of, I think I was on a student Yamaha went, went to and from Yamaha's, played a Smith Watkins instrument, which was great. Probably should have never sold it. But now, and I've been on the same one for quite a while now, it's just a stock Bark 37, silver-plated Bark. And uh, and actually, this this is really, this is a great advert for him, but Gary Radke mouthpieces. I'm playing the same Wayne Bergeron Studio GR that I've had, I've been playing it for over eight years now. And that's the original plating and everything. Gold-plated nice. uh, mouthpiece. Yeah, Wayne did an amazing concert that was as you can imagine, was an absolute testosterone fest in a London basement <laughs> jazz club uh, uh-huh. with a big band in 2012. And I think that was probably just after he launched this, but I play uh, his mouthpieces and have ever since then. Um, they're, they're absolutely fantastic. And once in a while, if there's something kind of filmic or more pseudo-orchestral, I might shove in a 3C, but it kind of, but for almost everything, I played just the, the Bergeron GR studio and... Yeah corresponding flugel mouthpiece i think i play the the deeper one and unfortunately it's it's gone through the wars but it's still a great hooter i've got the 
like the original Bobby Shoe six three ten Z flugelhorn, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, again that's probably now about twenty years old, but it's uh, still ticking and yeah, that's that's yeah. the gear. Okay, <laughs> a gear, simple stuff. You, you uh, Jerry got you hooked up with the Royer. Yeah, uh, we have. Well, I mean, the microphone thing is a, is a whole other gear tech side of things. But to be honest, in the recording world, as I've, I've learned more and more about it um, as the years have gone on. But you can actually start to use that a bit like a, you know, a bit like a color palette in terms of using that. So I'm that became quite an obsession at the right time because again, I I couldn't have I couldn't afford to buy them now. But I've got a lot of vintage Neumanns that I've they've they've been they've been looked after and i've had to get them serviced etc so mm. i've got uh probably two of the mics that i throw up on most things would be i've got some vintage 60s u67s uh, one's a telefunken badge one's an old neumann mm. badge uh i've got three km54s on jerry's recommendation as soon as i saw in a print interview that that's what he used and he swore by us it's like just ebay what reverb.com whatever i could find i'd try and snap it up and they're getting rarer and rarer now. Um, Royer ribbon. I love the Coles ribbons. They, they look kind of, most of them are at my studio. I've only got a couple of mics here, but uh, they look a bit like a, like a black waffle, like a, yeah, I yeah. Don't know, like mm-hmm. a weird, yeah, they, they're mm-hmm. great. They're fantastic. Um, but yeah, the Royer's, Royer's fantastic. I was just recording on it this morning. It's, um, and it can take a beating, which I guess is kind of important living in front of a trumpet. Oh yeah. Yeah. It better be able to. All right. Well, we're going to um, move into a uh, section. I, I do a rapid fire round. Uh, so I'm going to throw a bunch of questions at you. And I just, yeah, you, you better take a big sip for this one. Uh, they're going to go all over the place. Some will be about music. Some will be about completely different things. But but here's what we're going to do. The first one is going to be, uh, who's the biggest influence in your life that is not a trumpet player? Oh, I really, oh, that's a really tough question. Wow. So much for quick fire. You're going to have to edit yeah. out all the, ooh, ah, <laughs> ooh, ah. Uh, we'll come back to that. I'll have to think of that in the back of my head. I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know. Oh, my family. There you go. My family. Okay. There you go. There you go. Take that. Yeah, okay. Uh, what's your favorite book? Oh, I'd probably go with, I'm going to say Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, okay. Yeah. All right. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Sharknado. <laughs> that's pretty bad. That's, that's pretty bad. That's so bad it's good. Yeah. Um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to do? Be anything other than unemployed. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm a big, uh, I don't know if I've got the steady hands for it, but I'm a big watch fan. So I'd love to, there's something about the craft of watchmaking. And if I had steady hands and probably patience is the key, but I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to be a watchmaker. I feel like that would be quite fun. Uh, what's your favorite watch? I don't, oh, I've, I've got lots of dream watches or as they call them, grail watches, but I do have a couple of Rolexes, uh, vintage Rolexes that are particularly special. One from my, birth year so it's as old as me but it's ticking better so i've got an old submariner from the 90s uh, mm. which is absolutely <sighs> gorgeous yeah the 90s god you're making me feel old dude sorry actually that was yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah see i i'm personally i i like iwc's and uh paddock philippe's and uh, piaget's yeah those 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 are my holy grails rolex is just a little too big for me I know what you mean, and it's kind of I, I quite like the old older ones because they kind of they're they're a little bit more rounded. They're not quite as chunky or or large now, and made out of some like old older degrading materials. But yeah, I think yeah the Patek Calatrava ultimate dress watch of all time, uh, and I love the I love the the big pilot in the the pilot chronograph IWC. I'd I'd love to have some of those. That'd be great. All right. Well, when next next time you come over to the states, we'll have to get together and we'll go to uh, Tornos. Yeah, there we go. I can waste a lot of time doing that. <laughs> yeah, actually, there's there's a, I don't know if it's still there, but there's a really nice uh, tornos at uh, down in Vegas. So maybe we can hook up with Danny and uh, we'll, we'll go some do some watch shopping. There we go. Yeah. Okay, back on track. What's your favorite drink? Oh, gin and tonic. Ah, G and T's can't go wrong. Um, you could have you're having a dinner party. 
okay? And you can invite any three people that are still alive today. You can invite any three people to that party. Who would they be? I, this is a great, this is a great question. I like how you can be three here. Um, I'm going to go with Kiefer Sutherland because I've seen him drunk at parties and it looks <laughs> hilarious. Um, that's pretty niche. Uh, and then I'm going to go for, I've always wanted, again, probably just like Steve Lukather for the, for the sake of it, just for the story, Steve Lukather. Yeah. Uh, third and final, I guess we, we have to try and have a, a great thinker in there somewhere, don't we? Oh, Barack Obama. That would be incredible. Okay. That would be, that'd be a fun dinner party. Um, <laughs> all right. Lacquer plated or raw? Raw, I'd say. Yeah. I've kind of, I've stripped my flugelhorn. So that's raw lacquer now. All right. What's your favorite quote? Uh, again, I, I'd have to try and think of this. I'm sure it'd be something quite snappy, but um, I, I can't think. I should have. I should have practiced. I should have practiced. We'll have to get you back for a second round then. I know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, what's your greatest fear? Ooh. Um. I, I, I guess everyone is scared that they're not going to be happy, but uh, I, I, I'm happy most of the time, so that's all good. Yeah, yeah, not being happy is yeah. the greatest fear, I guess, yeah. Okay. All right. You could have any one superpower. What would it be? Time travel? Does that count? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a good one, I've got to say. Yeah, time travel. Go back and fix those clams and... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or just or, or just kind of going going past COVID and yeah, seeing what it's like on the other side. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I've got I've got I've got some I've got some good quotes now. I, I probably can't whittle them down, but they're old kind of funny uh studio musician quotes. The older I get, the better I was. Which I which I quite that, like. That, 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 um, I like that one. I didn't get where I am today playing the way I do today. <laughs> That's quite a good one. <laughs> We can get those on t-shirts. Yeah, that's right. Um, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? High notes, dare I say it. It's kind of, I, I get way more kind of, like impressed isn't the word, but it, I'd much rather listen to someone that's got like a really big fat sound from top to bottom. I, don't, I, I think, yeah, I don't know. It's It's weird because of course people will always kind of, pick holes in that if you if you have any recorded evidence of you playing high but that's not that's certainly not my favorite part of it All right um what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated consistency of sound yeah the whole kind of trying to sound the same from bottom to top and making it a blank canvas i guess trying to i try and think of well this is my i think this is my, of course my opinion i think that people should be able to have any dynamic at any note at any range i guess or or try and aim for that all right okay um so speaking of your time travel skills there we go there you go here's the next one uh you can go back in time uh to your younger self and you could give yourself one piece of advice about music what would it be uh i guess practice harder during my college years i think um and also yeah I, I like kind of some of the anecdotes about winton talking about play to move people not to impress people i guess that's that's kind of but then of course you can always there's plenty of ways along the way where you can kind of come back to that way of thinking but mm -hmm. I, like, I like that idea of it yeah yeah i like that too um same thing, you're going to travel back in time. This time you're going to give yourself advice, one piece of advice about life. Just live it. Uh, just kind of enjoy the moment more, I think, rather than worrying uh, about the past or the future. I'm a, I can be a bit of a worrier. So uh, just enjoy living in the moment and uh, take, it, take it as it is. Okay. And, uh, you know, you're a, you're a young guy, you're representing a, a, a new generation of trumpet players. Um, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, that people had good fun, uh, working alongside me, uh, and that hopefully they 
they saw me as a fan of music, hopefully trying to kind of play music on the trumpet uh, rather than the trumpet for trumpet's sake, I guess. Um, and certainly the, the more I do it, the more I really love the writing side of things. So maybe it feels like that can be a bit more of a ordered uh, creative process sometimes than the trumpet, although it still is one of my favorite noises on earth. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tom, I really appreciate you taking time uh, to hang out with me today. This has been great. I would say you've been a great host. Thanks, man. It's hey. great. I've I don't know what else to say, uh, but I will ask you this. If people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Uh, come and send me a, a Facebook message. Do whatever you want. Get in touch any way uh, on Instagram. I've got the horn section page, which I think is horn.house. Um, and then on my Instagram's Tommy underscore Walshy. That's my, that's my handle, I believe, the, the phrase is. <laughs> Look how young and hip with uh, yeah. hip with a lingo. Um, yeah. yeah, that's my handle. And yeah, of course, if, if anyone wants to come and chat, I'll always be always be there to kind of just yeah, just to hang. And your YouTube channel? Oh yeah, that's. Um, do you know what? I don't even know what that is. I guess maybe if you type in Tom Walsh trumpet, maybe some stuff will come up. I know um, that there's a yeah. shop. There's a shop putter called Tom Walsh, so that might be worth investigating along the way as well. Well, you know, that's that's your side hustle. Yeah. So, but I think yeah, it's a Tom or it's a Tom Tom Walsh horns, Tom Walsh trumpet. You, yeah. can, you can you can search both of those and find out because they're you know if you haven't checked out any of the stuff that Tom has done, um, there's some phenomenal clips on that YouTube channel. So definitely check it out and pre be prepared to have your your mind blown. So. Um, Tom, thanks again for, for the time, man. And I hope that either uh, in, in the, the future, this uh, post-COVID world, uh, that either you are out here on the, the East Coast or, uh, or that uh, I can get out. My, my wife is uh, European, so uh, we are hoping to be able to, to travel. She's uh, from Romania, uh, but we sometimes, you know, like flights, sometimes it's much cheaper to fly into uh, you know, like, uh, uh, if you're flying to London, I'm down the road from something. Heathrow. Let's do it. So, so that's what I'm thinking. I do have some other friends in London, so maybe we can get a nice hang together in London and uh, some good music, some good laughs, and great mate. See you in the pub. Yeah, <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so thank you all very much for joining us on this episode, and uh, make sure you check Tom out. Send him the message. Uh, he's a good dude. So. Uh, Yep, my pleasure. So, as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We're out. Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five-star ratings. And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? Hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor, and all other music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound, and I'll see you at the next hang.